If we must resort to explaining Otto's action this way, then we must also do so for the countless other actions in which his notebook is involved. In each of the explanations there will be an extra term involving the notebook. We submit that to explain things this way is to take one step too many. It is pointlessly complex, in the same way that it would be pointlessly complex to explain Inga's actions in terms of beliefs about her memory. The notebook is a constant for Otto, in the same way that memory is a constant for Inga. To point to it in every belief, desire, explanation would be redundant. In an explanation, simplicity is power. If this is right, we can even construct the case of twin Otto, who is just like Otto, except that a while ago he mistakenly wrote in his notebook that the Museum of Modern Art was on 51st Street. Today, twin Otto is a physical duplicate of Otto from the skin in. But his notebook differs. Consequently, twin Otto is best characterized as believing that the museum is on 51st Street, where Otto believes it is on 53rd. In these cases, a belief is simply not in the head. This mirrors the conclusion of Putnam and Burge, but again there are important differences. In the Putnam-Burge cases, the external features constituting differences in belief are distal and historical, so that twins in these cases produce physically indistinguishable behavior. In the cases we are describing, the relevant external features play an active role in the here and now and have a direct impact on behavior. Where Otto walks to 53rd Street, twin Otto walks to 51st. There is no question of explanatory irrelevance for this sort of external belief content. It is introduced precisely because of the central explanatory role that it plays. Like the Putnam and Burge cases, these cases involve differences in reference and truth conditions, but they also involve differences in the dynamics of cognition. The moral is that when it comes to belief, there is nothing sacred about skull and skin. What makes some information count as a belief is the role it plays, and there is no reason why the relevant role can be played only from inside the body. Some will resist this conclusion. An opponent might put her foot down and insist that as she uses the term belief, or perhaps even according to standard usage, Otto simply does not qualify as believing that the museum is on 53rd Street. We do not intend to debate what is standard usage. Our broader point is that the notion of belief ought to be used so that Otto qualifies as having the belief in question. In all important respects, Otto's case is similar to a standard case of non-occurrent belief. The differences between Otto's case and Inga's are striking, but they are superficial. By using the belief notion in a wider way, it picks out something more akin to a natural kind. The notion becomes deeper and more unified and is more useful in explanation. To provide substantial resistance, an opponent has to show that Otto's and Inga's cases differ in some important and relevant respect. But in what deep respect are the cases different? To make the case solely on the grounds that information is in the head in one case but not in the other would be to beg the question. If this difference is relevant to a difference in belief, it is surely not primitively relevant. To justify the different treatment, we must find some more basic underlying difference between the two. It might be suggested that the cases are relevantly different in that Inga has more reliable access to the information. After all, someone might take away Otto's notebook at any time. But Inga's memory is safer. It is not implausible that constancy is relevant. 
Indeed, the fact that Otto always uses his notebook played some role in our justifying its cognitive status. If Otto were consulting a guidebook as a one-off, we would be much less likely to ascribe him a standing belief. But in the original case, Otto's access to the notebook is very reliable. Not perfectly reliable, to be sure. But then neither is Inga's access to her memory. A surgeon might tamper with her brain, or more mundanely, she might have too much to drink. The mere possibility of such tampering is not enough to deny her the belief. One might worry that Otto's access to his notebook in fact comes and goes. He showers without the notebook, for example, and he cannot read it when it is dark. Surely his belief cannot come and go so easily. We could get around this problem by redescribing the situation, but in any case, an occasional temporary disconnection does not threaten our claim. After all, when Inga is asleep or when she is intoxicated, we do not say that her belief disappears. What really counts is that the information is easily available when the subject needs it, and this constraint is satisfied equally in the two cases. If Otto's notebook were often unavailable to him at times when the information in it would be useful, there might be a problem, as the information would not be able to play the action-guiding role that is central to belief. But if it is easily available in most relevant situations, the belief is not endangered. Perhaps the difference is that Inga has better access to the information than Otto does. Inga's central processes and her memory probably have a relatively high bandwidth link between them, compared to the low-grade connection between Otto and his notebook. But this alone does not make a difference between believing and not believing. Consider Inga's museum-going friend, Lucy, whose biological memory has only a low-grade link to her central systems due to non-standard biology or past misadventures. Processing in Lucy's case might be less efficient, but as long as the relevant information is accessible, Lucy clearly believes that the museum is on 53rd Street. If the connection was too indirect, if Lucy had to struggle hard to retrieve the information with mixed results, or a psychotherapist's aid were needed, we might become more reluctant to ascribe the belief, but such cases are well beyond Otto's situation, in which the information is easily accessible. Another suggestion could be that Otto has access to the relevant information only by perception, whereas Inga has more direct access, by introspection perhaps. In some ways, however, to put things this way is to beg the question. After all, we are in effect advocating a point of view on which Otto's internal processes and his notebook constitute a single cognitive system. From the standpoint of this system, the flow of information between notebook and brain is not perceptual at all. It does not involve the impact of something outside the system. It is more akin to information flow within the brain. The only deep way in which the access is perceptual is that in Otto's case, there is a distinctly perceptual phenomenology associated with the retrieval of the information, whereas in Inga's case there is not. But why should the nature of an associated phenomenology make a difference to the status of a belief? Inga's memory may have some associated phenomenology, but it is still a belief. The phenomenology is not visual, to be sure. But for visual phenomenology, consider the Terminator from the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie of the same name. When he recalls some information from memory, it is displayed before him in his visual field. Presumably he is conscious of it as there are frequent shots depicting his point of view. 
The fact that standing memories are recalled in this unusual way surely makes little difference to their status as standing beliefs. Perhaps the intuition that autos is not a true belief comes from a residual feeling that the only true beliefs are occurrent beliefs. If we take this feeling seriously, Inga's belief will be ruled out too, as will many beliefs that we attribute in everyday life. This would be an extreme view, but it may be the most consistent way to deny Otto's belief. Upon even a slightly less extreme view, the view that a belief must be available for consciousness, for example, Otto's notebook entry seems to qualify just as well as Inga's memory. Once dispositional beliefs are let in the door, it is difficult to resist the conclusion that Otto's notebook has all the relevant dispositions. These various small differences between Otto's and Inga's cases are all shallow differences. To focus on them would be to miss the way in which for Otto, Notebook entries play just the sort of role that beliefs play in guiding most people's lives. Perhaps the intuition that autos is not a true belief comes from a residual feeling that the only true beliefs are occurrent beliefs. If we take this feeling seriously, Inga's belief will be ruled out too, as will many beliefs that we attribute in everyday life. This would be an extreme view, but it may be the most consistent way to deny Otto's belief. Upon even a slightly less extreme view, the view that a belief must be available for consciousness, for example, Otto's notebook entry seems to qualify just as well as Inga's memory. Once dispositional beliefs are let in the door, it is difficult to resist the conclusion that Otto's notebook has all the relevant dispositions. Beyond the outer limits, if the thesis is accepted, how far should we go? All sorts of puzzle cases spring to mind. What of the amnesic villagers in 100 years of solitude who forget the names for everything and so hang labels everywhere? Does the information in my filofax count as part of my memory? If Otto's notebook has been tampered with, does he believe the newly installed information? Do I believe the contents of the page in front of me before I read it? Is my cognitive state somehow spread across the Internet? We do not think that there are categorical answers to all of these questions, and we will not give them. But to help understand what is involved in ascriptions of extended belief, we can at least examine the features of our central case that make the notion so clearly applicable there. First, the notebook is a constant in Otto's life. In cases where the information in the notebook would be relevant, he will rarely take action without consulting it. Second, the information in the notebook is directly available without difficulty. Third, upon retrieving information from the notebook, he automatically endorses it. Fourth, the information in the notebook has been consciously endorsed at some point in the past, and indeed is there as a consequence of this endorsement. The status of the fourth feature as a criterion for belief is arguable. Perhaps one can acquire beliefs through subliminal perception or through memory tampering. But the first three features certainly play a crucial role. Insofar as increasingly exotic puzzle cases lack these features, the applicability of the notion of belief gradually falls off. If I rarely take relevant action without consulting my filofax, for example, its status within my cognitive system will resemble that of the notebook in autos. But if I often act without consultation, for example, 
if I sometimes answer relevant questions with, I don't know, then information in it counts less clearly as part of my belief system. The internet is likely to fail on multiple counts unless I am unusually computer-reliant, facile with the technology and trusting. But information in certain files on my computer may qualify. In intermediate cases, the question of whether a belief is present may be indeterminate, or the answer may depend on the varying standards that are at play in various contexts in which the question might be asked. But any indeterminacy here does not mean that in the central cases the answer is not clear. What about socially extended cognition? Could my mental states be partly constituted by the states of other thinkers? We see no reason why not, in principle. In an unusually interdependent couple, it is entirely possible that one partner's beliefs will play the same sort of role for the other as the notebook plays for Otto. What is central is a high degree of trust, reliance, and accessibility. In other social relationships, these criteria may not be so clearly fulfilled, but they might nevertheless be fulfilled in specific domains. For example, the waiter at my favorite restaurant might act as a repository of my beliefs about my favorite meals. This might even be construed as a case of extended desire. In other cases, one's beliefs might be embodied in one's secretary, one's accountant, or one's collaborator. In each of these cases, the major burden of the coupling between agents is carried by language. Without language, we might be much more akin to discrete Cartesian inner minds in which high-level cognition relies largely on internal resources. But the advent of language has allowed us to spread this burden into the world. Language, thus construed, is not a mirror of our inner states but a complement to them. It serves as a tool whose role is to extend cognition in ways that onboard devices cannot. Indeed, it may be that the intellectual explosion in recent evolutionary time is due as much to this linguistically enabled extension of cognition as to any independent development in our inner cognitive resources. What, finally, of the self? Does the extended mind imply an extended self? It seems so. Most of us already accept that the self outstrips the boundaries of consciousness. My dispositional beliefs, for example, constitute in some deep sense part of who I am. If so, then these boundaries may also fall beyond the skin. The information in Otto's notebook, for example, is a central part of his identity as a cognitive agent. What this comes to is that Otto himself is best regarded as an extended system, a coupling of biological organism and external resources. To consistently resist this conclusion, we would have to shrink the self into a mere bundle of occurrent states, severely threatening its deep psychological continuity. Far better to take the broader view and see agents themselves as spread into the world. As with any reconception of ourselves, this view will have significant consequences. There are obvious consequences for philosophical views of the mind and for the methodology of research in cognitive science, but there will also be effects in the moral and social domains. It may be, for example, that in some cases interfering with someone's environment will have the same moral significance as interfering with their person. And if the view is taken seriously, certain forms of social activity might be reconceived as less akin to communication and action, and as more akin to thought. In any case, once the hegemony of skin and skull is usurped, we may be able to see ourselves more truly as creatures of the world.